saying, go ahead and open up your Bibles or the front page where it should say 1 Kings 5. And uh, read along with me if you would, please. Now Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon because he had heard that they had anointed a king in place of his father, for Hiram had always loved David. Then Solomon sent to Hiram, saying, You know how my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which were fought against him on every side, until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. And behold, I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spoke to my father David, saying, Your son, whom I set on your throne, in your place shall I, he shall build the house for my name. Now therefore, command that they cut down cedars for me from Lebanon, and my servants will be with your servants, and I will pay you wages for your servants according to whatever you say. For you know that there is none among us who has skill to cut timber like the Sidonians. So it was when Hiram heard the words of Solomon, they rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, for he has given David a wise son over this great people. And Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I have considered the message in which you sent me, and I will do all your desire concerning the cedar and the cypress logs. My servants shall bring them down from Lebanon to the sea, I will float them in rafts, by sea to the place you indicate to me, and I will have them broken apart there. Then you can take them away, and you shall fulfill my desire by giving food for my household. Then Hiram gave Solomon cedar and cypress logs according to all his desire. And Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household. And I know you're immediately going, 20,000 cores of wheat. Wow. And 20 cores of pressed oil. Again, mind-blowing because you probably don't even know what a core is. Uh, we'll get to that. The Solomon gave to Hiram year by year. So the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon and the two of them made a treaty together. Then King Solomon raised up a labor force out of all Israel, and the labor force was 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They were one month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the labor force. We met him last chapter when we saw Solomon's work, which is in 1 Kings 4, 6. His name, by the way, means my Lord is exalted. Solomon has 70,000 who carried burdens and 80,000 who quarried stone in the mountains. Beside 3,300 are from the chiefs of Solomon's deputies, who supervised the people who labored in the work. And the king commanded them to quarry stones, costly stones, hewn stones, to lay the foundation of the temple. So Solomon's builders, Sanam builders, and the Gebelites quarried them, and they prepared timber and stone to build the temple. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, you tell us that your word is active and living, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to divide joints and marrow, soul and spirit, discerning the intent and thoughts of our heart. You tell us that as snow falls to the ground and does not rise up again without causing it to be watered, causing it to bud and flourish, bringing seed to the sower and bread to the one who eats, so is your word, never returning to you empty or void, but accomplishing all that you desire. We trust your word is active and living and cutting and able to do all you desire and is never impotent, always potent. And yet, Lord, you also tell us that though things were spoken to those in the past, 
It didn't benefit them because they did not mix it with faith. And yet you tell us, oddly enough, that faith comes by hearing and not your word. So as your word goes forth, you are depositing into our account more faith. And then sequestering that faith upon your truth. So that tonight you would speak fluent us. And we would see this more than just a diagram and, and in essence, a simple historical account of a, a guy gathering stuff to build a, a house for him. But that we would see it personally. We would see how it pertains to us. And God, that tonight, here in this room, you would speak to each one of us individually where we need to be spoken to and corporately where we as a family need to be ministered to. So God, open our ears, open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts. Lord, immerse me in your Holy Spirit and come upon me that you would do your work tonight and that each one of us would be captivated in your word, drawn in, transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we would have so much fun in the journey. So Lord, let your word burst open and come alive, color in the black and white, and let tonight be magnificent, we pray. We commit this to you, Lord, and pray that every moment now, be redeemed. As you've counted every breath, may every one of them matter. In Jesus' name. Amen. would say tonight is a wedding. Please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be that for which you test all things to be true or false. Counterfeit or genuine. Back in the, the previous chapter, in chapter 4, verse 29, we read that God gave Solomon understanding. It's one of two house calls we have God make with Solomon. Back before that time, we have David. Uh, by the way, we have no record, at least in the historical accounts, of God personally showing up to David, if you will, more than it will be. Oh, we have some conversations. It's debatable. But what's very clear is God made personal house call here with this guy. Now... In that the first time around, God, if you will, sort of appears in a night vision, and sort of appears on his bed, if you will, and says, you just tell me what you want. Give me one thing you want, and, and I'll do it for you. Solomon could have asked for his foes. Oddly enough, at this point, he really didn't have any, other than a few people that had sort of made his dad's life miserable. But there's been safety on all sides, which is kind of a real kind of key factor in all of this. Um, beside that, though, he could have asked for a great deal of money, but he didn't ask for that either. He could have asked for a long life, but he didn't ask for that either. But instead he asked for wisdom, because one thing is for sure, Solomon was freaking out. Now Solomon more than likely was about a teenager, a late teen at this point, younger than my oldest daughter, which is a scary thought. And somewhere along those lines, probably about the age of Ben. And, and imagine God showing up, and here you are, and you are going to be, in essence, the king of the United Kingdom. Things were roughly changed. By the way, this is Ben, he's from Scotland, so well, he's Canadish, but in other words. But um, the things would radically change if you're a Scottish king, and then at least the last time that happened, it was. And, and in all of that, uh, you know, Solomon's just freaking out because he's seeing the weight of the responsibility in front of him, and he's not the first guy to be like that. All the way back with the predecessor, if you will, the one who sort of proceeds, uh, proceeds, follows after him. Uh, Moses, Joshua, who by the way was a soldier and a spy, he was an assistant to Moses. The man was as faithful and tight and as solid as a guy could be, and yet four different times he has to be told in a single chapter, don't be afraid, take courage. 
And this was a guy who, by the way, in the first battle in the wilderness, is the one leading it. That's how he's introduced. It's in the valley of Rephaim, when the Amalekites attack from behind. And it's this guy that's down in the valley fighting, duking it out. Man, I tend to see Joshua as a guy that's just a no-holds-barred, he has no problem ripping your head off kind of guy. And yet what's interesting is such a huge kind of character in Scripture, a guy who spied things out and then, for four, and then uh, was rejected with the rest of the crew, and one of two guys that will actually go into the promised land 40 years later of that generation, 40 years later, he's still ready to fight. Imagine having that fight in you 40 years later. And he was freaking out because he, Moses is handing him the mantle. And I kind of get that. And you can watch guys that didn't have a problem ripping your head off in real life, but then they find Jesus, and the moment they have to share Christ, they turn into the biggest sissies you've ever met. I don't know how that happens. I watch guys that were literally knuckle breakers for hell's angels. Guys that literally didn't have a problem walking into a pub or a bar or whatever and just start fighting with everyone. Yet, and they didn't have a problem, didn't matter how big they were or whatever, never saw a challenge in any of that. And yet, you just want to get them to share Jesus, and it's like they start to sweat and, and get diarrhea. It is unbelievable what happens to a guy like that. And the reason I say that is, is that Solomon here, his situation is even different. Because what he has watched, if you think about it, through, the, through those however umpteen years that he has lived, has been a pretty radical experience. He has watched the decline of his father. I mean, all of those glory days of David taking on Goliath, and David aggrandizing the kingdom for the most part, and all that, all of that took place before Solomon was born. Because all of that stuff takes place before 1 Samuel 11, where, you know, where Samuel, I'm sorry, where David falls with Bathsheba, who happens to be Solomon's mom. So when we read those great stories of David fighting with invincible armies that are taken down at the hand of this guy and his renegade 600, and then after that with the army of Israel, those days were the days that Solomon heard about, but he never saw. Some of you, maybe that was you. You were raised in a Christian home. And you saw those, and you heard stories of God's glory, of amazing things that took place. Miracles of partings of Red Seas and provision from water from rocks and, you know, and just God providing bread out of nowhere from the sky, if you will. And you hear these great stories and you read them in books about you know, milk trucks breaking down when guys are starting orphanages on a, on a prayer and on faith. And then you hear these and you're like, oh God, great stories. But the moment that all of a sudden something lands in your lap for the first time, and, you, and you, if you're anything like that, you pray, God, let those kind of stories happen in my life. But nobody wants to be put in a position where they need a miracle like those stories we read. We love the miracles. We just don't like being in a situation where if God doesn't pull through at that moment, we day in. And that's a problem. In Solomon's situation, he is looking and he has seen the decline. He's watched, I mean, in essence, so he's, you know, he's, he's been around. Well, a brother's raped a sister. I, I don't think he was there while it happened. And then, the, this, because they're half-brothers, because dad has a lot of wives, and with that, a bunch of kids. And then the full brother of the girl killed that brother. That's a bit rough. And then that guy that killed that brother tried to kill dad and take over the kingdom. And then him get killed and watch dad get torn up over all of that. Talk about a dysfunctional family. And this was, I remind you, this was the dad who was the guy after God's own heart. And God didn't say, well, he was kind of after my heart for a little bit. We've been in the midst of this madness. That's what Solomon saw. 
And yet in all of that, David still had a heart. God didn't have to ask David what he wanted, because David wrote it in the psalm when he said, one thing I desire and that I will seek after, that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. All that David really wanted was to be with the Lord. And I'll be honest, you have that kind of crazy family where that kind of stuff's happening? I, I, I would be praying for the rapture in a heartbeat. How about, hey, you're like, all right, Lord, now I, I just want to live with you. Can, can you just pull me out of this? And now Solomon is staring at a kingdom that he is going to have to run. And he's a king. And the weight of all of that sits on top of him. And God says, what would you like? And he said, I just, and this is loose paraphrase again, just don't believe me. Search it out. And he says, I just don't want to fail. Who can govern these people? I'm not a kid. I don't know what to do. I don't know what I'm doing. God never asks you to know what you're doing. He just asks you to know who knows what he's doing. God's like, so he's like, God, just give me wisdom. Literally, by the way, and I love the term literally in the Hebrew, it's a listening heart. Shema Elabav. And he goes, wow, well done, Solomon. Now, if God knows everything, why would God even give this opportunity to Solomon? Contrary to what I've learned in, in England, there are people in the world who give tests with the hope that you'll pass them. I was a, I was a secondary school teacher for six years. I would root for and pray for my students as they took their tests. Pray for the ones that take tests with us in our Wednesday night class, for instance. And I love it when God does something like that because he knows what you're going to say so that you will have the memory for the rest of your life of asking something pretty decent. I love those moments. So God gives Solomon wisdom. And as God gives Solomon wisdom for what it's worth, by the way, and, and, and for what it's worth, we're roughly, uh, I kind of give you a year, and we'll see that next, uh, we'll see that next week as we kind of get into a time step. 966 BC is kind of where we're going to be here. Uh, in roughly about April, May. So really not, I mean, roughly the same time of year, nearly where we are at the moment. But it tells us this in the last chapter that God gives Solomon understanding and wisdom. Exceedingly great largeness of heart, like the sand on his shore, the seashore. He excelled in wisdom above the men of the east and all the men of Egypt as well, the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than all the men, and he lists a few of them, men that obviously sound wise like He-Man. Obviously, how can that guy not be wise? And then it says in verse 32 of the previous chapter, he spoke 3,000 proverbs. Of which, by the way, we have less than six, and we have about a fifth of them according to Proverbs. And his songs were a thousand and five, of which we have, I don't know if you know this, do you know how many songs of Solomon we have, by the way, recorded in Scripture? We have three. There are actually two psalms, I believe it's Psalm 72 and Psalm 127, that are also written by Solomon, as well as the Song of Solomon. So we have those recorded. And it says, and he spoke of cedar trees of Lebanon, I think it's interesting, that's one of the first things listed here. He spoke of trees, the cedar trees of Lebanon, and even the hyssop that springs out of the wall. This giant, majestic thing, and this thing that almost seems like it's sneaking out. Uh, on my way, uh, walking from Greenwich to my house, there's always this wall that I see things growing out of. I always think of the hyssop when I see that. It says that it springs out of the wall. He also spoke of animals and birds, creeping things and fish. And men of all the nations of all the kings of the earth went and heard his wisdom. They came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. We'll see that with Huram and Assets here, but also in chapter 10 with the queen of Shiva, which is Ethiopia, will come and visit. And I'd like you to consider this. This is the state Solomon is in when this chapter takes place. Now, think about it. We are, in essence, 
2,900 and some years, almost 3,000 years ago. Solomon finds meaning in everything. A tree blows his mind. Bugs blow his mind. He looks and he sees fish, and he's like, whoa. You know what's really sad? That as such a person who could walk into a room full of quote-unquote mature Christians, and I've watched this, watch people that are quote-unquote mature Christians make fun of such an individual who really, in essence, represents the wisdom of God here. Because everything blows his mind because he sees a meaning behind it. When was the last time we looked up and saw stars? I don't know, just that because we live in London. And we're blown away by it. Or a sunset. Or the rain. I mean, if there's anyone who should be blown away by the rain, it should be us because we get enough of it. Or the Thames. You remember, I mean, let me ask you, how many of you were born and raised in London? By show of hands. One, two. All right, two of you. It means the rest of us showed up here. So let me ask you, how many of you showed up in London more than 10 years ago with a show of hands? That's two of you. I do not like to live this way. I can not make an answer. Okay, how many of you, uh, so you've got a little more than a decade of London under your belt. If you will. How many of you showed up here five to 10 years ago? Okay, so, that's, yeah. so how many of you showed up yesterday? Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember what it was like when you first showed up? Some of the things that were really, really just cool. I mean, Big Ben, at first it was just really cool because it was just cool and it, was, it had its magnificence about it. And then sooner or later you realized, okay, that's just the bell. And suddenly you got too smart to be in wonder of it. What's that with that? We spent most of my life at the beach. And we'd wake up, I could tell you the surf. I'd call my friends and tell them the surf report from my window. And you forget. People spent their whole life saving up to go here once. And I'd get up, and any time I wanted to, I could go and run my dog on the beach. Well, as long as I had her. <coughs> and I'd forget how amazing that was. Look what it was like when we first found Jesus. I won't say you first found you because he always knew you were. But how amazing it was. Did it choke you up that you were forgiven? Did it amaze you how cool it was to be set free? To know that all the rubbish and filth and poo that you have bagged over your life has been burned away and washed in the blood of Christ and never to be reviewed again? Remember how amazing it was? Do you remember what it was like the first time you walked into a fellowship, preferably this one or whatever, where you were like, dude, I belong here. This is, a, this is like a place where other people really love Jesus. Hey, they live life, but Jesus is still the center of it. How weird that was. It smelled like heaven a little bit. Remember how weird that was? And you were just excited and your heart would skip a beat. And you were like, do you remember the first time and prayerfully this has happened to you? Are you actually sensed God's pleasure in you? Where it wasn't like you were working for him and maybe at the end of it all got in the way of saying you were okay, but where 
you need to lie. You didn't want to rejoice to agree with Satan. You remember the first time that actually nailed you? I mean, more than just as an ideal or concept, but in your heart. You thought, wow. How amazing. What does it drive you to do? Drive you to want to put a place where God can be easily found in your life. Where you central. That's what Solomon's doing. I mean, his dad was the one who loved God. Solomon's the one with wisdom. His dad was the one with passion, if you will. Although Solomon's got his own kind of passion. It's getting him in all kinds of trouble. And yet in all of this, understand, dad left the blueprints. Dad makes really clear that he'd gotten blueprints from God. And as he got blueprints from God, he, uh, he gave them to his son and said, All right, boy, this is what God promised me you were going to do, so get on it when you get the chance. And then David did this thing that love does, and that is, if I can't do it to bless, I will make it easy on the one who can. And he gathered all the materials he possibly could. I mean, he gathered gold and silver. By the time Solomon here is reigning, silver's like rocks. Nice. I'd send people out, hey, why don't you guys go get some rocks? And it would be silver. I mean, how cool would that be? I mean, crazy as it is how rich things were. But interesting here, Solomon's going to build things. And I want to point this out. Solomon's going to build things according to God's ways. And the building is going to be very unique in, in a lot of ways. But even in the way that it's constructed from the structure up. Now consider this. When you said yes to Jesus, and I'm not just talking about, hey, I don't want to go to hell, get out a free card, hell, get out a hell free card, but I mean, when you really made a ward, which is what scripture demands, by the way, for your salvation, I challenge you to find one place in scripture where it says, confess Jesus as Savior and you're good. It demands you to confess him as Lord. You remember when you did that? In your life, there was a regime change. There was a throne. And the one who sat upon that throne, who you might have thought was you, but it wasn't, was dethroned so that God could take the throne that belongs to him properly. And might I say this, the reason I say it. No time is a kingdom more vulnerable than in a regime change. And everyone knows it. Two big things happen when a regime change, change, when regime, regime change happens. One is... Friends renew their alliance with you. They want to make sure that the new king is still in allegiance. You know, that the, the sort of the peace treaties and so forth are ratified. So it makes sense. We hey, just want to make sure we're still cool. I mean, now that you know that's the case. But enemies that have been lurking know that that's the time to strike. Because they know in a moment like that, let's face it, the king is the commander of his army. And if the king has never fought in an army because he's basically been sort of a pudgy, spoiled, mollycoddled kid in the household, he's not ready to lead an army. So an enemy is going to go and attack in a moment like that, and that poor guy's going to be tripping over his own sandals trying to get his army together to fight, and he can't even get up on his horse without help. You can imagine that's the time to strike. And the reason I say that is you will find during these changes, that is the time where things slip in. It's going to happen in your own life too. That the moment that the Lord really just takes the throne of your heart, there are going to be both. In some cases, people are going to check and be like, hey, we're still cool, right? I mean, can we still be friends when you're a Christian? That kind of thing. And then there'll be others who, by the way, how are going to, I mean, you would have never thought this person's going to declare a war on you, but they do. 
And they're like, how in the world did you become such a whack job? They were so nice to me yesterday. Well, Hiram is stepping in here because he loved his father. And he did, by the way. It was Hiram, we read, by the way, in 2 Samuel 5.11, if I remember correctly, who actually gave dad the, the building materials, wood, by the way, as well, to build dad's palace back in the day. So the only record we have of this guy came down prior to this point. His name, by the way, means noble. It's a good name. And so when Solomon steps in, Hiram kind of goes, hey, I love your dad. We were really good buds. Just want to make sure we're cool, man. That's kind of what he's doing, which is a classic thing. By the way, what we'll find is, if you remember that in David's case, David's downfall happened because the king of Ammon died and his son took his place. And David went and sought to send people to comfort him. Hey, I'm sorry to hear about your dad, but I want to make sure we're cool. And the guy actually thought that David was spying things out. That was what happened because his counselors, they said, well, David, you're vulnerable. He's checking to see how he's going to attack you. And for which, of course, starts a war. So let me ask you, as God's taking over things in your life, are you finding that happening? Are you finding people on one side freaking out that you never thought would? And let me say this, people don't have a problem with you becoming a Christian until you become a real one. If you just want to call yourself that, but you're going to live the old life, no one's going to have a problem with that, except to be honest, real Christians, or the Lord. But you, you find yourself where Jesus is the center of your life. Some people are really going to come at you with their guns loaded. And I'm on the other case. He's on the other side of this. This noble king comes over and he goes, hey, just want to make sure we're cool. Solomon goes, hey, you know what? You remember what you did for my dad? You went and you got him what was necessary to build the house. Well, I need some materials too. But it's not for building my house first. It's for building the temple. My dad, in essence, I inherited these blueprints and I have a job to do. And that job is to build this house. And so I need cedars. Now, by the way, Lebanon those days, do you know what it's called today? Lebanon. That was good, that's it? Yeah, so you kind of found it. Uh, and there is this, this idea about what a cedar was like back in the days. And there's some really, really cool stories I've heard about them, for what it's worth. Uh, David, his dad, had expanded things from 6,000 to 60,000 square miles. The kingdom, imagine, that means it's 10 times its size than it was before David stepped into the situation. Interesting for what it's worth, that is, uh, in essence, basically, uh, I think it's something like eight times greater than all of the square miles in Israel today. Now, these cedars that David is, I'm sorry, that Solomon is asking for, they have quite a reputation. A specific breed of cypress and of, well, in essence, cypress, uh, and of cedar grow up in Lebanon to this day. But the, the, uh, to give you an idea, the width of those trees, to give you an idea, the width of some of these larger trees is basically that door to here. give you an idea. These are big, big, big pieces of wood. But interesting, I've been told that they were refurbishing parts of Venice about 10, 11 years ago, and they started pulling up some of the same site, I'm sorry, some of the same cedar logs uh, up that, of course, have been sitting in water for the last hundred years, and they were just as good as they were when they found them, when they initially put them down. Because one of the things that uh, cedar has is it's super rich in sap, so it basically protects itself once it's cut. So you can imagine, this is something that's extremely durable, smells amazing, 
and, and by the way, it's, it's in essence, impervious to a lot of the weather. Now, there's a lot of different places we can go with this, but can we kind of cons- have you consider something? It's this particular verse that keeps standing out to me, and I believe it's 1 Peter 2.5. Uh, does anyone have their Bible near them? <coughs> I'm going to ask somebody, by the way, to read 1 Peter 2, 5. Who's got it? Someone's got to have it by now. Everyone's kind of looking around. Or... <laughs> All right, Ugo. Let me just change the version. Just don't read it in French, and I think most people will get it. 1 Peter 2.5 says this. That's okay. Take your time. Just don't blame you for going. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Get this, what God is telling us is that we are being built into the temple of the living God. Now, we as living stones. God is building us into something that when put together, people look and go, whoever lives there is magnificent. That's the whole point. There's the beauty in it. Look at it. Let's just say that we were completely removed from the concept of a church building. We don't have any history on that at all. We were from some place that never had seen anything like that. Never saw a mosque, never saw a church, never saw any kind of building like that. All we knew were houses. And we were brought into a place like England, for instance. Or much of Europe. Be that in France, or be that in Italy, or be that in Spain. You know, and you walk by, and imagine, you walk by, and especially in a place like this, because it's like house, 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 church, house, house. And that's kind of the way things are here. So imagine you walked by, and you saw the houses, and then you saw that building. And all you knew was as a house. What would you think? You'd think, whoever lives there must be pretty important. And imagine, and, and please understand, coming from a Calvary background, we kind of take up storefronts and warehouses. So initially, I remember most of my earlier walk with the Lord, I was kind of like... You know, I sounded like Judas. This money could have been given to the poor. Until we had a bunch of architects coming to our church back in California. And I asked them, I'm like, when you look at a church like that, a building like that, what do you see? And they're like, I see the toil and sweat of a person that really wanted to put God in a... So people looked at the building and said, God must be there. And I realized, wow. So what would you do if you had to design a house? I mean... You know, we could kind of get in our own weird way, our own weird piety, go, well, I just build it to be this kind of lean-to shack kind of thing. But if you really wanted to say this should look like heaven, this should look like God on his throne, what would you build? Would it reach to the sky? Would it have glass that pitches colors all over it like the crystal throne that God sits before? You know, with the, the, the crystal sea and, and all of the rainbows and so forth that shoot out of this thing and the thunder. And, you know, what would you build to make that thing seem like it was majestic so that lightning and thunder happened when things happened and the place was showered in color and light. I mean, imagine what you would do to make something like that. And the reason I say that is, is that when you look at that and you didn't recognize it as a church but just as a house and you went, wow, whoever lives there must be pretty awesome. Understand, it tells us that you like living stones, we like living stones, we're being built into something, so that if someone were to look, they would look and go, whoever lives in there must be awesome. That's the idea. So imagine what that would be like if this building were actually you. 
Because at least that's how it's affected me this particular week. And I realize how magnificent it is because it tells us, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 3, that it says that no other foundation can be laid but that of Jesus Christ. You get no other one. So start with this. And I'm just going to pick on Ben for the moment because I got him in front of me. Ben gave his life to Christ. You were probably quite young, would be my guess. Quite young. But let's just say that, as it's the case, somewhere in all of that, we, we give God the sort of lean-to that our life was. Oh, let's, let me, I'm going to pick on someone else that actually came to Christ a little later. Let's go, let's go with Hugo for the moment. Or Susan. Or Bruno. Anyways, um, you know, it's sort of like, imagine, you know, or Deborah, I know you're all kind of right in front of me. You're kind of, it's cool to see all these people. Uh, but imagine, like, you come to Christ and you're like, God, I need you to fix my life. And it's interesting because we can want to remodel, or we can want to refurb, we could want a relocation, and those are very, very different. And in sort of a re- remodel, it's like the inside's rough. I've got, I'm like, I've got discord inside. I'm lacking peace. I'm lacking hope. I'm kind of depressed or freaked out and anxious. God, will you remodel my inside? But that's not giving God control over everything. Or the structure of my life's falling apart. Right now in my life, things are rough. You know, it's like I just seems like everything I set my hands to is falling apart in front of me. But it's like I feel like I'm becoming an addict, and what in the world is all of this? Well, what we're asking is we're asking for God to refurb the place, right? We're kind of asking for Him to do one of those kind of things where they stick the rebar in there, you know? And we're like, all right, God, could you do that? Can you retrofit my life? Or, I just hate the environment I'm in. I hate my friends. I think my friends hate me. I think they're bigger jerks. They probably think I'm one. Could you get me a new set of friends? You show up at church, people are nice to you for the moment. They're like, hey, this is a cool relocation. Look at these people. They have to like me. They have to forgive me. They have to be nice to me. Or they're sinning. I can't get that from my old friends. But none of those things are what God wants to do in your life. So here's the difference. In such a situation, you're still the foreman, aren't you? You still draw the blueprints. And you're like, I don't like this, tear it down. But somehow in it, you're still the lord of the project. But you know what God does? He slaps that dangerous, scary word on the front. Demo. Right, you've seen it. Right, they put the kind of fence around it. And you're like, oh, you know why they're doing that? Because it's going to make me pretty. God's like, no, because we've got some blowing up to do. And he takes that thing and it's like, boom! And the whole house collapses. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what I want. That's not what I asked for. I asked for you to make this thing better. And he says, you know what? I I have to, but I'm not going to do it with these materials. And I'm certainly not going to do it with what you gave me. So what happens is you give your life to Christ and things start collapsing in your life. And you're like, what is this? You know, I, I thought you loved me. And then God does the scarier part. He starts removing that stuff. And even though it's in shambles in front of you, you're like, I can still see my poster on that part of the wall. You know, and God's removing it. And you're like, no, I love this stuff. And God's like, no, you don't. You don't want this stuff. But he's not done yet. That's only the beginning. You see, what God has to do is he has to yank up the old foundation. Because no other foundation can be laid but that of Jesus Christ. But what was the old foundation? It was me. I'm responsible. 
I got to make it happen. It's my, it's, and let's face it, for some of us, we've gotten by pretty well with that. So what happens is God starts ripping that up, and that really hurts. The rest of this stuff's kind of external. It makes our life uncomfortable. It grieves us a bit here and there, but this stuff really hurts. Because he's yanking up the stuff where we put us first. And that's pretty much all parts of our life. And at this point, we're panicking because we're like, all we can see is loss. Let's be honest. And like I said, love will make you silly, but loss will make you stupid. So you start acting out of that. And you're fighting God, though you gave him permission to do this. Because God has a plan exactly what he wants to make you. You know what happens? Is that God's got to rip up that foundation. But you know what happens once he rips up that foundation? You know what you're left with? A hole. You know, it's like the girl who wants the right guy, but she won't break up with the wrong guy. Well, the right guy's not going to ask you out if you're with someone else. But somewhere in between the wrong guy and the right guy is usually no guy. And that's a hole. And you know what a hole looks like when it's dug like that and pulled up and your foundation's gone? It looks like a big grave. And let's face it, that's what you're like, I'm dead. My whole life's dead. It's over. I had a friend who was a foreman back in California where I came from. And he was an interesting guy because he was sort of a salt of the earth kind of surfer. So he was like, no, bro, that's cool, man. And he only worked when it wasn't too hot and when the waves weren't that good. So he worked part-time. But I remember him sitting down with me telling me something so profound once because a lot of the buildings back where we came from were really, really big. But they always seem to be have to be redone. Now, we traditionally had a fire every 10 years, and that was like the best thing that could happen in those buildings because they weren't going to last much longer anyways. And the ground moved, so everyone was going to get oceanborne property sooner or later because everything else was going into the river or into the ocean. But I remember him saying, you know, a lot of the houses had literally had no foundation. He's like, you know what happens when a house has no foundation? And I'm like, no. He's like, well, bro, everything from that point on is custom. And I'm like, you know, pastor, so I'm like, this is going to tell me something. All right, speak on. I'm listening. He's like, well, because there's no sure foundation, you have to build everything with this idea to give an appearance of it being straight and upright. Because you can't really get it straight and upright because there's nothing to hold it up. And I'm like, oh my goodness, that is so much of what my life was like before this. Before I had Christ as my foundation, you keep prodding things up, you keep trying to keep them propped up to make them look like everything's good and working, but it's not, and you know it. In other words, your whole life is custom, bro. <laughs> now, it tells us this. No other foundation can be laid but this, Jesus Christ. And the reason is there's only one foundation strong enough, durable enough to be able to handle what he wants to build on it. Do you know what he says a few verses later? What he's going to make there, he says, you are the temple of the living God. Do you know what he's going to build in that spot? That used to be this shack? A glorious cathedral so that when someone walks by, they go, whoa, who lives in there? Must be awesome. There's no point in it. Now, if you consider that, understand, Solomon's trying to build that just almost 3,000 years ago. But he has blueprints from God. You know what's interesting? The first radical difference between this temple and every other temple in the area was what held everything up. Any guesses 
in a traditional temple, what held up the ceiling? Pillars made of stone. We all know the story, I imagine, of Samson. It wasn't like he put himself between two trees to pull them down. He put himself between two pillars. Traditionally, you made them of rock or of some modified kind of concrete material. Rock, traditionally, in those days, was limestone, which is very wet, so it's easy to crumble it. You set it on fire, you build a fire underneath it, it evaporates the water, it crumbles the dust. Solomon, on the other hand, chooses, instead of building it with that, God's blueprint saying, nope, we're not doing it that way. We're not doing it with stone. We're doing it with trees. And not just trees, good trees. Trees that are established, that are rooted, that are big mama trees. Well, loose paraphrase. I don't have that episode in the scripture, but yeah. <laughs> And so I'm praying about this, and I ask her, hey, Lord, well, what would that look like? Well, consider this. When you think about trees, where does your mind go? My mind goes to Psalm 1. Because immediately God relates that. He says this in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. So you notice it was walk, stand, sit, the progress. But instead, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in it he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that will bring forth fruit in its due season. His leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does will prosper. It's where we get the song, part of where we get the song Evergreen from that we sing. And the idea of it is, a man who delights in the law of God, in God's word, and delights in his God, becomes like these cedars. And God goes, that's what we start building this with. With people who are rooted and established. It's a great place to start building when you think. Well, with that, that's what Solomon does. And Hiram here, Hiram, by the way, is more than happy to oblige. He says, well, cut these things down. And notice how Solomon kind of butters them up. Maybe that's part of the wisdom. He's like, look, let's face it. You know, we've got stone guys here. We've got stoners all we want over here coming out of our ears. But up there, all y'all know, you guys are the lumberjacks. Nobody's wearing plaid over here. Y'all, you know, I got the beard with the wax and the tooth and the whole bit. You guys are all cutting things down. So could you guys do the, the tree cutting, please? And he's like, yeah, you know what I'll do? We'll cut them, we'll put them into rafts, we'll float them down the med. And assumedly, by the way, that's the area of Jaffa even today, which is just five to eight miles south of, of Tel Aviv. And he goes, we'll float them down there, you guys can pick them up there, and then roll them over if you want. He goes, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. He goes, by the way, all I really want to ask in return is, you guys on the other end, we may have great, you know, uh, lumberjacks, but you guys have great farmers. One thing Lebanon was not growing was wheat. And he's like, you know, we could really use some of that cereal. And Solomon was more than happy to oblige. So verse 7, when Hiram heard the words of Solomon with this request, he blessed God. He says, I'll happily get you the cedars. That's Eretz, by the way, and the word cypress is the word barosh, by the way. It's, it's various, it's arguing over what particular type of tree it is, but it's extremely durable, even to this day in Lebanon. And then Hiram gave him those things, according to verse 10. All that he desired, Solomon gave him 20,000 cores of wheat. If we're going to go conservative on that, that's basically 200,000 to 370,000 bushels of wheat. Let's put that into perspective. 
What that means is, that is basically 500 to 1,000 bushels of wheat a day. Well, that should be enough cereal, what do you think? That, that's, we, we got bread. And then, as far as the measures, the 20 measures of pure olive oil, now what we're roughly looking at is roughly about 400,000 liters. So that's, it. if you think about it in the simplest sense, that's over a thousand, I'm sorry, that's over a thousand liters a day. And that happened every day during the building of this thing. So, one thing seems to be sure, no matter how many people seem to be eating at Canada's table, they've got bread. I mean, you know the three things that it takes to make bread? Wheat, oil, and water. Well, you got water up in Lebanon, by the way. So the only two things you need are wheat and water, are wheat and oil, are both of which, by the way, notice it's pure olive oil, pure pressed olive oil. And so basically these guys, they're, they're in bread heaven. To this day, by the way, there is this uh, tradition about some of the greatest bread in the world is baked in Lebanon, and it's from this story, from what it's worth. King Solomon raised up a labor force. No. In our last particular portion of this, I'd like you to consider what we're looking at. The, the temple needs to be built. And for the temple to need to be built, some things are going to need to happen. You're going to need, by the way, it's not the work of one man, it's the work of a community. I do love this. God has never intended for you to be an island. He's never intended, by the way, a great verse for that is Proverbs 18.1. It says, whoever seeks to isolate himself seeks only his own benefit and rages against all reason. In the simplest sense, you are acting crazy and you're being selfish by trying to isolate. You might actually think opposite, but that's what God says. Now, consider this. It's going to take a community. In your life, God is going to send people in your life to build the temple he wants to build in you. And in me. The problem in all of that is what they have to do to build that place. Well, notice what it says. First of all, we have these 30,000 men. Of the 30,000 men, basically they work one month on, two months off. They do that apparently four times a year. That means 10,000 men are basically part of this particular part of the labor force you know, every month. And they were there in essence handling the logs, if you will. Then, according to verse 15, Solomon had 70,000 who carried burdens and 80,000 who quarried stone. You know what it, what it means to quarry stone, right? It means you were cutting it. You were chiseling it. Imagine the hands on those guys. They were chiseling away that rock. Now, traditionally, the way they would do it is they would chisel in the rock, they'd drive in these wedges, and then they would shove in those wedges wood. These, wood, the, these sort of wood wedges, and they'd shove them in there, and then they'd pour water on them. And one thing about wood is you're probably aware that when it gets wet, it expands, and it would crack the rock. Brilliant. But we're talking about ones that are over 400 tons. It's a big rock, by the way. Now, for what it's worth in all of that, there are three different groups of people that we find involved in this notice. There were, there were in essence, there were the carriers, there were the cutters, and then if there was, if there were the caregivers, if you will. On one side, there are going to be those who have to do the carving. They have to do the cutting. They have to chisel away to get good, solid pieces of rock, because good, solid pieces of rock are necessary for the external part of this to keep the important things safe. Then there are going to be those who have to carry that. Now, imagine how strong those people are. You might know in the first case, in the cutters, by their hands. In the second case, you might know it by their arms. Because carrying, and traditionally they would roll them on logs, but what's crazy is if you see the size of these things, 
you would you would have to deforest the entire Middle East to actually build this building. Now, with that in mind, you have those, and then you have the caregivers, the ones that are making sure it's all happening for the same purpose, which is to build this thing. Let me say the same thing is going to happen in your life and in mine too. God is going to send into your life chiselers, cutters. Traditionally, those are people you don't enjoy. Sometimes, and I'm going to be dangerous to say this, sometimes you marry them. They're not intended to be someone you don't enjoy, but God will always use them to carve you. Because they're the people who know you the best often on earth. But they're going to be people who, I remind you, God is in control of the situation here. And they're going to be carving you to make you fit. What we're going to read in the next chapter, I believe it's in verse 7, is that you never heard the sound of an iron tool at the temple site in proper. In other words, all the carving took place elsewhere. Then they dragged these things and put them in their place. And let me, let me just say, as much as we'd like to make... It seemed like this is the place where we become the most like the Lord. More than likely, it's going to happen outside this room. It's going to happen out there where the chisels are. And someone's going to rub up against you and they're going to cut into you. You're going to be like, oh, come on. But they're necessary to make you into Christ's image. You come into a place like this, in essence, this is kind of the locker room. You've been out on the field, you've been banged around. You know, someone's like fallen over and whined and held their shin, though you never touched them. You got a yellow card for it. You don't even know what in the world you did for that. And you just don't think life is fair at the moment. It's like a parking ticket, though you don't have a car. And, you know, it's somewhere all of that. You kind of come and you're banged up and all this. You got an elbow and the lip and the whole bit. You come into this place and the coach is like, look at We are still, I want to remind you, I've already seen the end of this game. We win this game. We win this match. But the question is, what part do you want to play in the win? Because I've read the end of the book. We win. And when you read the end of the book and you realize you win, the only part that's left is, do you want to play the position of left out? Or do you want to play the position of left wing? Do you want to be a striker? Do you want to be a goalie? Or do you want to be a person that in essence kind of stood somewhere in the stands, but somehow feels like you have a right to the cup when the whole thing is over? And it's in a place like this where you realize when we all get together and someone's, you know, Adam's lip is bleeding, you know, you know, and, and it's like Bruno is so frustrated about the liner that he's been covering because he keeps falling over. And, you know, and, and the funny thing is, is that you get so caught up in that thing that you sit in a room like this and we go, wait a minute, have you forgotten? This is a match and we've already won it. Are we having fun in it? It's like, let's face it, why do they elbow you in the lip? Because they're intimidated by you. Why are they falling over? Because you're outpacing them. And the only reason I'm saying that is, why are people you know, flaunting their things and getting in your face and challenging you about your, your convictions because they're intimidated and frightened by you, though they'll, ne they'll never tell you that. Neither will the guy out on the field, will he? And it's a place like this where we come together and we're like, look it, we win, what part do you want to play in it? Do you want to be the one that's just, that you know that is part of countless testimonies because you've been investing in people's lives, or do you want to be just somebody that redshirted it the whole time but somehow technically still gets a ring? Because I don't want to be that. I want to be the guy that's pulling grass out of my teeth by the time I'm done. And I want to say when I've spent it on the field, when I'm done with the match and this this life is over, I don't want there to be anything left. Let there be no doubt that this thing's done. And the reason I say that is, is that there are going to be people in life. You leave this place, we're back on the field, and there are going to be people carving into you. 
And as they carve into you, understand God is sovereign. He is not going to let that happen unless it's to make you more like Him. The choice is whether you're going to enjoy the game or not. Enjoy the match. But then there are also going to be carriers. And the carriers are those in those moments when life is rough and they're known for their arms. You know, in the first case, it may be a guy in essence, maybe it's verbally, prayerfully in love, slapped you around a little bit. Again, I'm not in any way encouraging violence. I'm saying, you know, what tells us? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Where the person pulls you and says, you know, you're kind of being a jerk here. You know, this isn't really fitting for Christian. You know, that kind of thing. Do you have somebody like that? Again, not somebody who's going to yell at you from across the room, but loves you enough to say, hey, walk worthy of the calling God placed on your life. If there isn't, I volunteer. Walk worthy of the calling God placed on your life. But then there are other times, you know, where you're the one who actually got tagged. The guy slid and you went down. I'm funny, I'm looking at a crew that I think the least equipped person to give this kind of metaphor is me. Well, anyway, you know, and it's like, you know, some weird, and it's like your knees popping and your hips sore and you're kind of all that kind of thing. And it's like there are kind of moments where, you know, you need somebody that's just going to put, they're going to grab your arm and put it around their, their neck and they're going to get you off the field and go, don't worry, we're getting back in this thing as soon as you're up for it. And they need to be carriers too. Let me ask you, which one are you? All right, I mean, you need to be one or carefully both. Like the best player is both, don't you? The one that you know can count on you to challenge you to do your best, but also knows when you have done your best and you're on your face, they'll pick you up. Isn't that the best kind of guy to be presented? Because there's both. But then there are also these other guys, these caregivers, the ones that want to make sure it's all done for the same purpose. So we come in a place like this and go, look, you're going to get carved, but he's going to make you more like him. You're going to get carried, but it isn't so that you can become fat and mollycoddled. It's so that you can be healed and restored and get back into that thing. Because let's face it, I don't, I don't know about you, but I've never been fun for watching. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I think there was a particular sport that I played, and I think I sat out for three minutes in one game in my entire season, and I those were the three worst minutes. They were like the worst years of my life. As I watched somebody else out there whining but having fun. And I'm like, oh, I went out there. But I was so angry at that particular moment. And I really wanted to kill the guy that I was standing against. So they, they pulled me out for good reason. It would have been probably a lawsuit. But the reason I say that is, it's like, let's face it. How much of Christianity, how much of Christianity is genuinely a context for? And how much of it is actually like we watch something on the screen of? Because like it or not, life is a context for it. And you're a Christian in that life. You're going to bump shoulders. You're going to hit elbows. And you're going to stare in the face of some people you don't want to stare in the face of. And we'll be honest, they're going to stare in your face and don't want to stare in that either. The question is, do you have people in your life, first of all, that are going to be like these logs, established and sturdy? They're not wishy-washy. They're not jellyfish. They're going to not bend on the Word of God. But they're going to say, look, this is what Scripture says. And I'm rooted in it. And I'm delighting in the Lord and the law of the Lord. And I'm going to tell you, we win this state. If not, I volunteer. But I pray that every one of you would become or be that. But then with that, you've got the carvers. And you've got the carriers. And then you've got the person who oversees the whole thing to make sure the whole thing and the essence of it all, if you will, those that keep the work going forward, they're putting it all together. Now, as it's the case, by the time we're done with this thing, 
what we read is we've got, if you think about it, over 183,000 men plus the Sidonians who are working up in Lebanon, cutting down the trees and floating those things down. Let me give you an idea. The entire borough of Camden is 200, roughly 225,000 people. I mean, think about it. That's like a quarter of a million people live in our borough. And that's about the amount. That would be like every human being in Camden. I mean, some of the people I think in Camden makes me laugh. But every person in Camden working for this particular purpose. They're going to be those who carry with compassion, those who are going to cut and challenge you, and those who are going to oversee the whole thing and make sure that it keeps the work moving forward. Because let's face it, when you get cut, you want to quit. Sometimes when you get carried, sadly enough, you could want to quit there too. You're just carrying me to heaven, bro. But by the time this thing is done, what we're going to see is that God is building us in this amazing thing where people look and go, wow, God lives there. So look at this. We go to prayer, and we're right at that point here. The chiseling starts the moment we say yes to Jesus. Ephesians 2, I believe it's verse 10, says we are his workmanship, poema, literally his masterpiece. If you think of all the things that God has made, God's masterpiece is still new. It says, created for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. But most of the chiseling, again, happens outside the temple, if you will. So that when we get put together in a place like this, we actually fit better because of that chiseling. It humbles us, which is a really good thing to make us more unified. You know, it's like you really want to not fit in with everyone, just be proud. And you could be proud about your walk. You could be proud about your walk with the Lord. You could be proud about your holiness. You could be proud about your schedule and your discipline. Or you could just be proud about who you think you are in some other way. But none of those things make for, by the way, for the stones sitting well upon each other. It tells us that we are grieved by various trials in 1 Peter 1.6. Those very trials carve us more into his image and purify our faith. But I want to remind you of this in Philippians 1.6. It says that he who began that good work in you will be faithful to complete that good work until the day of Christ Jesus. He never, listen, if God started something with you, he's not going to stop it until he's done there's no place where God's like, oh, I didn't realize you were going to be that bad. So let me ask you, have you accepted this gift of Jesus to start with? Dying on the cross so that all of your filth, that rubbish, that poo could be completely washed away. Your guilt, your shame, completely vanquished. You can stand before him holy and pure because he's offering you. If you have said yes, and I'm not just saying as Savior, but as Lord, he didn't just die for your sins. He buried, he was buried just as scripture promised, and just as scripture promised on the third day, he rose again and offers you a new life. That's the whole point of the resurrection. And in that, he wants you to walk that new life where he becomes the reconstructor and reinventor of your entire life, the architect of your reinvention. And he'll rip up and tear up and, and, and just pull out that foundation and pour the right one, the only one strong enough to build you into the thing that is his masterpiece. And it's all custom work, but it's custom work that's solid and straight and sure. So if you have said yes, will you pray with me as well that we would trust God as he does his work, but also that he would make us the cutter when necessary, but also the carrier when necessary? See, for some of us, we're really good at cutting we're just not going to carry. And some of us are really good at carrying, and we're not going to cut. 
We need to tell the truth, but we speak the truth in love. That's what God's scriptures tell us in Ephesians. And with that, tonight, God is going to continue to build something so that someone looks in your life will say, Wow, whoever lives in there must be awesome. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the beauty of it and what you've done in this time. I do pray, Lord, right now, that you would, in this room right now, show us where we genuinely are at with you. Maybe there's some that we feel like we've been chiseled too long. There's some we feel like we've been carried too long, or we, we have been, we just don't feel it. But Lord, Lord, you ordained for us to be both. You've ordained for us to be stone cutters when necessary. To tell the truth without compromise. Like those established, sturdy cedars in Cyprus. <clears throat> but Lord, also, you have ordained in each of us a compassion that helps us to carry those who really are in a place where they're too weak to walk. Lord, give us the compassion to know when to be a carrier and the courage to know when to be a carver and wisdom to know when and which is required. But Lord, also, you raise up among us those who are consistent to challenge to make sure this is all done for the glory of the living God. Raise us up to be those as well. And we just pray, Lord, that you would give us faith when you're carving and peace when you're carrying. And Lord, that we would be people who allow you to glorify yourself through us in such a way that the world would know how great you are. So Lord, raise us up to be people who aren't afraid of the contact sport and aren't afraid of the, the incidental contact and the intentional contact, knowing that both of them only display that we're out there doing what we're supposed to. Make us bold and brave. And if there be any tonight who have yet to say yes to this living Jesus who died for your sins and rose again, and you know that's the decision you need to make, pray this prayer with me right now. God, I am a sinner. And before you I stand in my shame and guilt. But you tell me you so loved me that you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for my sins to be buried, and to raise again on the third day, just like your scripture promised, and he did that for me. And if he did all of that for me so that all my guilt and shame could be paid for and vanquished, well then I say yes. Not just declaring Jesus as my ransom and savior, but tonight I declare him as my Lord as well. I give you, Lord, the right to tear down anything and everything, rip up the foundation and lay yourself in its place, and in that place then, build that beautiful thing of my life you ordained to. As I commit this to you now, I am yours in Jesus' name. If you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. God, you've heard our prayers tonight. Submit those convictions, please. And may we walk tonight as you ordained in Jesus' name.